All right. I am, I'm excited to get into scripture with you all today. I think I'm especially excited, as Andrew said, because it kind of connects to my background growing up. Uh, but So we're talking about one of my favorite biblical characters, but we're talking also about who I view to be one of the greatest historical figures of all time and his conversion to Christianity. So if you were with us last week, uh, we've been tracking through the book of Acts, and we've been watching as this Jesus movement called the church kind of takes off. And so Jesus has come, and he's lived a perfect life. And he has died, and he has resurrected, and he has gone to the right hand of God the Father. And in place of himself, he has sent the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is empowering the church to live out in obedience and in love in communities in Jerusalem. And more specifically, Andrew talked about last week how... uh, how we can serve in the power of the Spirit. And included in this was the account of Stephen, who is considered to be uh, the first recorded Christian martyr. And so historically, what's so interesting about the church up until this point and in redemptive history is that the church up until now is made up only of Jews, There are people that are God-fearers. There's people that are seeking kind of after God. But the church, as filled with the Holy Spirit, is made up primarily of Jews. But the thing is now that we make this radical claim that God wants all peoples to come to him in Christ. And so the question then is, how did this happen and who helped lead this movement? And that's how we run into the Apostle Paul. Now, if you've grown up in the church, or even if you've been a Christian for a a short time, you've probably heard the name Paul thrown around, Uh, and his uh, conversion is certainly miraculous, and we'll be reading about that and looking at some characteristics of that today, but I really want us to focus on God in this passage. I want us to see how God is working in Paul's life and how the Lord really wants and desires to work in our own lives in similar ways. Furthermore, as we look at the text, there's three things that I want us to take away. The first thing I want us to see is that God is in control. The second thing I want us to see is that he demands courageous obedience of his followers. And the third thing is that he is capable of redeeming us in our brokenness. I'll say it again. He is in control. He demands courageous obedience. And he is capable of redeeming us. So with that said, the uh, passage is going to be Acts chapter 9 says right up there, page 917 in your pew Bibles. So go ahead and turn there. And if you don't have your own Bible, feel free to take the one in the pews. That's our gift to you. Uh, And while you're opening that up, I think a little bit of context of the situation we're coming into goes a long way. So I'm going to try and shed some light on that for us. So essentially what we're walking into when we read this passage is a spiritual boxing match where in one corner we have this guy named Saul. And I may use uh, the names Saul and Paul interchangeably. I'm referring to the same person, but it's just out of habit, so uh, just recognize that. Uh, But Paul is both a Roman citizen 
and a Jew. So this is unique, and this gives him special privileges in uh, the Greco-Roman culture and under Roman authorities. So at, at or near his birth, he would have received both names. So Saul would have been his Jewish name, and Paul would have been his Roman name. And as he starts his ministry to the Gentiles, as we'll read about, uh, he decides to go by the name Paul. And I think Luke is leveraging this in a literary fashion in order to show how Paul's identity has changed in Christ. And so Paul's not only a Jewish man, but he is a Pharisee. So he's extremely devout. And what he would have done is he would have left his hometown of Tarsus as a child, and he would have went to Jerusalem. And in Jerusalem, he studied with Gamaliel, who's an extremely prominent rabbi of the day. And so to put um, in basic terms, if you're reading Paul's religious resume or looking at his spiritual pedigree, essentially Paul is the bomb, okay? Uh, so that's Paul in one corner of the ring. In the other corner of the ring, we have the church. And at this point, like I said, the church is made up of primarily ordinary Jewish men and women, and they, they claim that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah, and they have been filled with the Holy Spirit, and God is working supernaturally as people are experiencing God's goodness in communities. And so the good news of Jesus is what's happening is that this movement of Jesus followers, the news is trickling into the city of Damascus. And Damascus at the time is a pretty prominent trade city. And so the issue becomes that if the gospel actually takes off in this city, then there may be no way to stop it from blowing up into the surrounding region, to the rest of the world. And so depending on what corner of the ring you're in, this could either be a huge threat or this could be a miracle of God. And so if you are a Jewish person who rejects Jesus, that he is the Messiah, then, and you're looking for one person to front run this movement, to put an end to this Jesus movement, then who better are you going to choose than this hotshot named Saul? Right? So Saul gets this letter from Caiaphas, who's the high priest at the time, and he heads off to Damascus to put this thing down. And so that's where we run into ourselves in the text here. So let's look at that. Um, I am going to read chapter 8, verses 1 through 3, because it kind of gives us the vibe of what's going on in the passage, and then I'm going to jump to chapter 9, verses 1 through 22, so try and follow along. It says, and Saul approved of his execution, that is Stephen, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea, Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him, but Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house, he dragged uh, on men and women and committed them to prison. So to chapter nine now. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, that is Christianity, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise, enter the city, and you'll be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with, uh, who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. 
Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard uh, from many about this man how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me, so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is this not the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ." So this is the word of the Lord. All right. So if there's one thing that is uh, clearly evident from this passage, I would say is that God is sovereign. That is, he is in control of all of the events that are taking place. And as Saul gets equated to the Lord's instrument in verse 15, I figured a music metaphor would be... uh, Uh, a good thing to go with as we go through the sermon this morning, so try and track with me. Uh, If you know me personally, then you know music has kind of always been a really important part of my life, not just because I like listening to it or because uh, I enjoy playing music. I do, but uh, more because it has helped me connect uh, with my own heart and with the heart of God on a deeper level. And so if you can identify with this love of music that I have, um, then I'm sure you have a band or a musician. If you're anything like me, then that switches like every three months. That's your favorite. Uh, But the thing about these musicians that we like is that they demonstrate superior uh, musical expertise. And so for this morning, I want us to view the Lord as our master musician, And I want us to see that he demonstrates superior musical control, knowing where all of his instruments are at at all times. There isn't a moment where God is caught off guard uh, by world events. He's not shaken by these things. He is on a mission to get the gospel out to a dying world and a dying people, and he's doing whatever is necessary in order to make this happen. And if you don't see his sovereignty, uh, let me highlight a couple of things from the passage we're looking at and from where we've been in Acts so far that can kind of shed some light on this. So in the beginning of Acts... Jesus promises that the gospel is going to make its way out of Jerusalem into the surrounding regions and into the rest of the world. And so we ask, how does this happen? And this happens through the persecution of his church. So as Joseph would say in the Old Testament, uh, what man intended for evil, God intends for good. So God is demonstrating control in that the harshness being put on his people, he takes it and he uses it to expand his kingdom. 
To add to this, the pretty blatant example from the passage we're looking at today is Saul. And so he takes this man named Saul who clearly has a hatred up until probably about verse 14 or 15 for Christians, and he gives him such a love for these people and for Jesus that he spends the rest of his life serving these people, and as Christian tradition would have it, was martyred for the faith. Finally, God shows himself to be sovereign and that he confirms Paul's call into ministry with Ananias. Can we can we imagine for a second this persecutor of the church waltzing into the assembly of believers saying that I'm here to help you guys out, right? This clearly wouldn't have gone very well. This would have instilled fear in the people. And so what does God do? But he includes Ananias who can confirm the miracle that has been done in Paul's life. Friends, this passage, it doesn't just show us that uh, our, our circumstances, it doesn't show us that they're going to be uh, comfortable or even what we want them to be, but it does show us that God is in control. And I'm sure I'm not the only one who's in this room that feels the pressures of life, of, of work, of relationships, whatever that is, but we have to remember that when we're surrendering to God, we're not just surrendering our sin, but we are surrendering our control. And what is so beautiful about this text is it gives us a glimpse into the God who is the epitome of what it means to be good and loving. It gives us a glimpse into the God who is more trustworthy to control the direction of our life than even our own efforts. So I want to ask you something. When you are anxious and you feel like you don't have a place to hold on to, are you recognizing and remembering that God is more trustworthy than even you are? If this is true, right, then we need to be looking to him on a constant basis for every decision and for every step we're taking. So continuing our metaphor, if God is in control, he is the master musician, he doesn't only wield his instrument well, he knows the notes that are to be played and I think this is a really good illustration of how God is working in Ananias' life here. And as he calls Ananias in accordance to his will. Ananias is this man who hears from God, and God assures him that he's not only in control of the situation, but he assures him, he commands Ananias that he has a composition that he's written out. And Ananias has to follow this composition if the music of the gospel is going to be played to the Gentiles through Paul. But I want to be real with us. I don't just say courageous obedience only because it makes all of my main points starts with a C. I, it does, and I did that partially. But for real, this is, this is a scary task, right? Paul is calling, or God is calling Ananias to go to Paul, who is the enemy of his faith. This is very similar to what we run into in Jonah in the Old Testament, so God calls Jonah to go to the Ninevites, the enemy of his faith. And what does Jonah do? Jonah turns around and he puts it off and he runs the other way. But what we find in Ananias is that he responds a lot more similarly to Isaiah, the prophet. When Isaiah is called, God is calling for someone, and Isaiah says, here I am. And this is the same words that Ananias is recorded as saying. Certainly it's not that Ananias knows all of uh, the details of what his encounter with Saul is going to encounter as he goes forward. But he does recognize that Jesus is Lord, and for him, that's what is sufficient. 
Now, you might ask, how does this play out in our own lives? And I think this plays out in a couple of ways. So try, try and bear with me for some of these. The first way that we interact with this demonstration of courage is by asking ourselves whether we're actually taking the risks that God is calling us to in our everyday life. And what I'm not saying is that we become reckless or that we lack discernment, but what I'm saying is, for example, if you're sitting in a Starbucks and God calls you to go to the other side of the Starbucks and tell some random person that Jesus loves them, how many of us in this room would actually do that? If you're like me and you like to plan things, then you probably want to have all of your ducks in a row before you did something like that. And if you tend to go with the flow and you're not much of a planner, then you might not even have thought to the point where you might have to share your faith with somebody that day. But the key is this. If we want to walk with courage in obedience to God, it is no secret. Jesus says in Matthew 28 that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. The thing is that how we respond to God and his call upon our life shows what we really believe about that passage. Every decision we make is an expression of that. So do we actually believe that Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth? Are we taking the seeming risks to us that God is in perfect control of in courageous obedience? The other way God calls us to courageous obedience is in relationships. I'm going to take a survey. How many people would you raise your hand if you've heard this idea that we need to develop deep relationships with unbelievers before we share the gospel with them? How many people have heard this idea before? Oh, you guys are brave. This is great. Okay, awesome. So I've heard this as well, and I'm not saying do not contextualize the gospel, and I'm not saying that, that we just go, like I said, be reckless, all out, fire and brimstone on the street without developing any kind of rapport with people that don't know the Lord. But, but, how much are we just using that as an excuse because we're just afraid to share the gospel with people? Why do we have to wait a certain amount of time before we feel comfortable talking to them about the Lord of creation? I mean, let's use Ananias as an example. What if God went to Ananias and he says, Ananias, I want you to go be a gospel witness to Paul. I want you to heal him so that he can change history, essentially, on my behalf. And Ananias' response was like, can't I, can't I just get to know him? Can't I go to caribou with him and hear his story and act like I'm sympathetic towards the hurts in his life? Can't I wait two years and then if it comes up passively in conversation, I can make some vague reference to you about how you've saved us from certain death? I mean, how many of us do this? I'm in that camp as well, so don't think I'm up here saying that I never do this. I'm in this as well. And I think that we play into this way too often. Right? We can't let our friendships and our relationships overshadow the mission that Jesus is calling us to. What if when we heard the Great Commission, go and make disciples, we didn't respond with fear and anxiety, but we responded with excitement? I mean, if your friend is in a burning house and the house is about to collapse, are you going to go into that house with them, stay there for a period of time, knowing the way out, or are you going to stand outside the the house and you're going to shout to them that there's the door and his name's Jesus? 
we can't be prioritizing our relational comforts over the mission that God has called us to. Looking back at Ananias, surely as we look at this passage today, he's not meant to be the main character. But even his small piece of scripture, his step of courageous obedience, knowing who God is, led to history being changed essentially forever and this grand expansion of the church through Paul. So the next time God asks obedience of you, I want to encourage you to think about it in this way. Am I going to respond like Jonah? Am am I going to put off what God wants me to do? Am I going to go the opposite way? Am I going to wait a certain amount of time or have all my ducks in a row? Or am I going to respond like Ananias? Here I am, Lord. As Samuel puts it, speak, Lord, your servant is listening. Finally, in watching an expert musician play, they, they not only can wield their instrument, and they not only know the right notes to be playing, but they also have to have the skill to play them, right? They must be capable. Now, I believe in our context, we confuse God's capability with capacity. What this passage doesn't show us is that God, if he tried really hard, if he really wanted to, uh, if he worked at it, could maybe possibly have an impact on our lives. That's not what this shows us. What it shows us is that when God moves, we change. Brothers and sisters, this is the heart of our passage. This is the place where our longing for something bigger meets the God who can do more than we ask or imagine. This is the place where God meets Saul, the man who thought he essentially had anything only to realize that he had nothing. He saw it in his blindness that he had nothing without Jesus. Just look at the language used here about Paul. In chapter 8, verse 1, Saul approved of Stephen's execution. In chapter 9, verse 1, Saul is breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. I mean, how much harsher language can we use for this man? He cannot stand Jesus or his followers until he meets Jesus for himself. The man who once led the Jewish people into war against the church now had to be led by the hand to Damascus to get healed. The Pharisee who persecuted the name of Jesus now was to suffer for the rest of his life for the name of the one who loved him and gave himself for him. Friends, Jesus is capable of transforming and redeeming even us. There's no ifs, ands, or buts. And I know that we sit here and we carry baggage, and, and that baggage has guilt and shame and real pain associated with it. We're not fooling each other by showing up on Sundays like everything is okay. But even Paul, if you look forward into Acts 22, he recalls, he remembers how he stood there as Stephen was stoned right in front of him and died. I mean, surely this is a a man who this memory would haunt him for the rest of his life. But we cannot forget that this is the same man who wrote to the church in Corinth a 13-word phrase. And you guys are going to finish the phrase, I hope. He said, if anyone is in Christ, amen. All right. That was awesome. 
Okay, I was hoping that was going to go well. So, so as we close, we're going to do two things. Uh, we're going to hear a piece of scripture that Paul wrote after he had come to know Jesus. We read about him coming to here. We read about God's work in his life and who God is and how he reveals his character in this. And so we're going to read how Paul responded to this. And we're going to take the Lord's Supper. And so if you are a Christian, then the Lord's Supper is for you. But regardless of where you stand on Jesus, I want to encourage everyone here to reflect on two things. If you're here and you don't know Jesus, then let this serve as your introduction to the God of all things. No matter who you are, no matter where you come from, what you've done, or even how you feel sitting here right now, whether you're on the fence, skeptical, unbelieving, whatever it is, Jesus still loves you. And just know that when we're taking communion, what the church is remembering is that Jesus shed his blood for us, and he was hung on a cross so that we could have forgiveness of sins. And he desires you to come to him, so would you consider believing that he was who he said he was and that he did what he said he would do? And then based on that, would you join us? Would you turn to Jesus? And church, I hope those are things that you already know. But are you remembering that God didn't stay dead, but that he's alive and that his very presence lives in you? Are you recognizing Jesus as the master musician that we see here in the text? The one who's in control, the one that demands courageous obedience of us, and the one that is capable of doing absolutely anything in any situation of our life. This is the Jesus that we've come to know. And this is the Jesus that the world needs proclaimed to them by every single one of us every day to this dying world. So without further ado, I'll call the ushers up as I read this passage, and then we'll read this and we'll pray, and then we'll take communion together. And I just want you to reflect on a couple of those things. So Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit that lives in you Christians, wrote this. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Let's pray. Lord, you are not only a great musician, but you are a great orchestrator. Lord, you have just, mm, you have called us in your sovereign will to know you, God. 
And we thank you for what you've done in Christ on our behalf, that we would know you and share in fellowship and reconciliation, not only with you, but with one another, God. Would you help us to lay down our own control knowing that you are sovereign? Would you help us to walk in obedience knowing that you are sufficient for the first step and every step that we have to take in the power of your spirit, Lord? And would you help us to recognize that you not only have the capacity, but that you are capable and willing and desire to move in our life in amazing ways in order to form us further into the image of your son. Jesus, we recognize you as our king this morning. And we pray that you would have your way in our life, that you would help us to look at Paul's life and be encouraged that you can move and you can change even the greatest mistakes we've made in order to glorify your name. Lord, we pray that your will would be done in our communities, in, upon, and through us. We pray that we would be brothers and sisters and neighbors and witnesses, Lord, sons and daughters of you, because through Christ, we can say, Abba, Father. Lord, we lay ourselves down and we lift you up this morning. Amen.